Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. In recent years, we've come to expect huge destructive wildfires each season in California. Most of the time, these fires scorch less populated areas, but not always. Most of the time, they happen outside of the Bay Area, but not always. This week, we're marking the 30th anniversary of the Tunnel Fire, the 1991 firestorm that consumed 3,400 homes in the Berkeley and Oakland Hills. 25 people died. If you were here when it happened, you'll never forget it. If you weren't here, this is Need to Know Information. This hour, we're taking your calls and hearing some heartbreaking stories of survival, loss, and resilience. That's coming up on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. It's raining right now, but if you've lived in the Bay Area for any length of time, you know October is often dry and crackly. The wind blows hot, and you think to yourself, can't wait for the rains to come and put an end to wildfire season. Thirty years ago this week, the rains came too late for Oakland and Berkeley. Those October winds kicked up and blew a small brush fire above the Caldecott Tunnel into an inferno that killed 25 people and destroyed 3,400 homes. We'll talk about lessons learned with those who lived through it and those trying to make sure nothing like it ever happens again. I'm honored to introduce our guests now, Frances Dinkelspiel, journalist and founder of Berkeley Side and Oakland Side, who lost her home in the fire 30 years ago. Frances, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And we also have Elihu Harris, the former mayor of Oakland from 1991 to 1999. Uh, do you mind if I just keep calling you mayor this hour? Whatever works, I'm fine. <laughs> I've, been called, I've been called everything but a child of God. <laughs> Well, we know you are that for sure. Uh, Why don't we start with you, Francis? So much of your personal story struck me as the stuff of a classic nightmare. You're late to realize the severity of the situation. You're far away and you can't get to your house and your cat. Although I suppose in some ways for you and your husband, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Yes. So um, I was in San Francisco with my husband and both sets of parents. Um, We were having brunch uh, at Zuni Cafe. And when we finished eating, we went outside and we looked uh, to the East Bay and we saw this enormous plume of smoke. And uh, interestingly enough, the previous day, while we had been touring Sausalito, uh, we'd also seen a plume of smoke in the East Bay. Um, And um, I was a reporter for the Mercury News at the time. And I rushed over uh, to Oakland and I talked to the fire officials there about what was going on. And they assured me that they had everything under control. Um, And that was just a mile from my house. Uh, But unfortunately, that fire actually flared up with the Diablo winds uh, the next day. So when we were on Market Street looking at that smoke, which just covered the entire sky, I knew we were toast. You know, uh, back then I watched the flames from the roof of the Berkeley co-op I was living in with my housemates, jaws agape as houses went up one by one. I've, I've read one every 11 seconds on average, but but my home didn't burn. What was that like for the two of you to decide first to to stay and to rebuild? 
Well, you know what was really, the fire was devastating. It completely incinerated our house and it, it, it killed our cat, which I write about in this essay that's on Berkeley side. And, you know, for some, it was easy to sort of understand what we lost by, by how sad we were about our cat. But for some reason, um, you know, we felt like we didn't want to be defeated by this. Uh, we felt like we wanted to rebuild. We wanted to stake our claim in the ground saying, okay, we've suffered this loss, uh, but we're going to start anew. And one reason that was easier to do, and, you know, Mayor Harris, I, I think your administration had something to do with it. So many people had lost their homes that it was a collective sort of grief. And the community of Oakland and Berkeley really stepped up to embrace the fire survivors, you know, offer discounts, offer, you know, a group of photographers offered to take photos to replace pictures that had been lost. So many people sort of stepped up to, uh, to help that it, it created this actually nice feeling and that contributed to our decision to rebuild our home. Mayor, what do you do from from your catbird seat in 1991 to make sure that that is how the community responded to the to these survivors? Well, first of all, we've been just through uh, an incredible earthquake two years earlier, and then this happens. I'm at the farmers market in Jacksonville Square, and I look up and see the same plume of smoke. Think that well, something relatively small. Uh, within literally hours, it had come to a point of massive crisis, a home is burning, fire running down the freeway. And all that we can really try to do is say, look, how do we become together as a community? People were obviously uh, in, in, in emotional uh, distress. Uh, there certainly was no housing for many of these people. So all these things were coming together at the same time. We had an emergency response. The city council and I and the major administrators met at a fire station, became a, a kind of a command headquarters and began to kind of think about what do we do? How do we respond? And I think the response was appropriate, but certainly a reactionary to something that none of us could have predicted. Mayor, I, I believe you live in Montclair now, right? Yes. Do you feel people, your neighbors around you today, understand the importance of the lessons learned in 1991? Well, 97% of the people this year responded to the uh, requirements of the city ordinances relative to removing any brush or any type of uh, uh, fuel from the fire area. Certainly we removed many of the eucalyptus trees, undergrounded utilities. So many things were done to try to make sure this was not going to be repeated. But I do think there were lessons learned that have continued to this day. Francis, I, I got to say, driving into KQED this morning, I couldn't help but notice all kinds of greenery sitting on power lines. Maybe that's just PG&E, but, but I don't know. It, it, it seems to me that, that there are a lot of people in the Bay Area who might feel, perhaps because of their proximity to the Bay, that it, it won't happen here. It can't happen here. Well, Yes, they may feel that, but that's not the that's not correct. It, it probably will happen again. I mean, in 1923, a fire burned through uh, much of Berkeley, destroying 800 homes. In 1970, there was a big fire on Fish Ranch Road. I mean, I I, I think. Um, you know, Berkeley and Oakland are better prepared for a variety of reasons. One, um, you know, building codes were changed to require people to build stucco houses with, you know, metal roofs or, or, or shingled roofs. There, you know, the hills are not as dotted with, you know, uh, with, with wood shingled homes. Uh, there's also just a better awareness, as Mayor Harris alluded to, of keeping brush cleared from around your houses. I think all these things are positive steps, but there's still many parts of the Bay Area and the hills that, you know, haven't made these adjustments and climate change has happened. I mean, when, when my house burnt down in 1991, I thought this was a once in a lifetime event. And now we see it happens multiple times a year. Like climate change has completely uh, upended, you know, the, the narrative. And I, I think, unfortunately, there will be more fires in the future. Mayor Harris, can you take us back uh, to that time 30 years ago when when really I, it wasn't just o uh, Oakland's fire department, but, you know, the, the Bay Area's fire response uh, community was just was just caught flat footed by by the tunnel fire. 
the mutual aid was very important. We not only got help from surrounding fire uh, departments, but also from the state. Uh, some federal government also was involved. It was really something that was such a tremendous uh, public uh, emergency that we really did have the response. But again, nothing is stronger than a fire uh, that's out of control, uh, certainly an urban fire where uh, you don't have the ability to cut back uh, to areas that are remote or uh, you know without homes or lives uh, endangered. It was a very much a stressful situation where no one really realized or felt that there was any particular end in sight. So it was literally days that we were concerned about this continuing to spread. I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, we can imagine it now with more recent events like the campfire. A lot of the people who died in 1991 were, were trapped in their cars trying to flee because they were, of course, traffic jams on, on those hills on those narrow, winding streets, you had fire fire trucks that were having trouble coming up to to reach the fire where it was. Um, it it was it was just a hot mess. And there's still the danger. A lot of those roads are narrow. We certainly restricted parking on many of those roads. Other things to make sure that people think about how they're going to get out, which way they're going to go. So there are many people now who are more prepared for this potential than certainly in 1991. But it's still uh, an area that's, again, very much wooded because people wanted to be in those areas uh, and dangerous, but hopefully not as dangerous as it was 30 years ago. Rachel? Yes, Francis. Um, you know, I, I do think uh, we are better prepared. There were some structural issues that hampered the fighting of the fire um, in 1991. Uh, East Bay Mud had not installed pumps uh, up to its reservoirs in the hills. And when the electricity went out, those reservoirs went dry very quickly, uh, hampering firefighters' efforts to uh, douse the flames. The communication systems between various fire departments were different on different channels that hampered communication. And there weren't, I think, standardized sort of, uh, uh, you know, hose hookup. Uh, so some communities couldn't hook up their hoses to the fire hydrants. And all this came out after the fire. And I, I do believe uh, those issues have been addressed. Uh, but, you know, I think it was the 1991 fire was a big wake up call uh, to increase regional cooperation around these issues. You know, you mentioned earlier, like you live in a stucco house now. What are some of the other things you've done personally to to protect uh, not just your life, but, you know, your stuff? To protect me, my possessions in my house? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I lost all my possessions once and I learned, I, I, you know, if my house burns again, I'll live, the possessions are really not, you know, the most uh, important thing, but, um, you know, I have packed a grab bag full of my most precious things. So, um, you mentioned, I am like the co-founder of Berkeley side and Berkeley side and the Oakland side did this whole big wildfire package. Um, and one of the ways we were trying to get people to think about what happens when a fire erupts is to do a contest asking people to pack a to-go bag and uh, you know send us their pictures. Now, I was embarrassed that I didn't have a to-go bag. I already lost my house, but I didn't have one. So that prompted me to sort of comb through my, my stuff and put my most precious things and my papers in a to-go bag. Um, and so now I have that right by my front door. It's the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Oakland Fire, and we're talking with Frances Dinkelspiel, journalist and founder of Berkeley Side and Oakland Side, who lost her home in the fire, and Elihu Harris, former mayor of Oakland from 1991 to 1999. After the break, we'll be joined by Rob Roth from KTVU Channel 2 News, who covered the fire as a young man. What are your memories of the tunnel fire in 1991? Have you been affected? by more recent wildfires that make you think back on that time. Call now at 866-733-6786 and join the conversation. Once again, that's 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro. We're talking about the 30th anniversary of the Tunnel Fire in the Oakland and Berkeley Hills. 
1991 seems such a long ways away, but in some ways it's here with us still. It was a harbinger of things to come. We're talking with Elihu Harris, the former mayor of Oakland from 1991 to 1999. Frances Dinkelspiel, journalist and founder of Berkeley Side and Oakland Side, who lost her home in the fire 30 years ago. And now Rob Roth, a reporter from KTVU Channel 2 News, who covered the fire. Uh, Rob, thank you for joining Joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Rachel. You had a baby on the way uh, that fateful week. Do you want to talk about what that was like? Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure your wife was thinking, you know, don't don't be a, a a hero. Don't try to run towards the flames. Run away. Run away. Well, when I left the house, I promised her that it would be an easy day, and I try to slip out early in case she went into labor. Um, but it didn't, uh, it certainly didn't happen that way. Um, you know, when we got to work, uh, you know, there'd been that, uh, grass fire, uh, on the Saturday, the day before, and, uh, it was all but out. And, um, my photographer, Nick Soros and I went, you know, back up into the open hills to just to, to see the firefighters just kind of mopping up actually. And they were, they were even winding up their hoses, um, but the winds were really strong and gusty and coming from all directions. But at some point, uh, the firefighters were very casual and they, they pulled out, they got a, a, another call and uh, Nick and I uh, were uh, and all of a sudden we could see almost like a campfire uh, sized fire. And uh, the winds just kept uh, whipping it and whipping it and whipping it. And, and so, so quickly, uh, it just you know, ballooned into this massive uh, fire with smoke everywhere. And the one thing about wildfires that I didn't know at the time is they're very loud. Um, and so you could hardly hear yourself think we're getting all these pictures. You know, there's that you know, excitement and adrenaline of you know, journalists getting pictures. But then at one point we realized we have nowhere to go. We were cut off from our news car. Rob, uh, I'm I'm know, gonna I'm gonna break in there just because your line is breaking up, and uh, we we want to give uh, uh, our engineer a chance to talk with you about that because I've got more questions. Uh, but why don't why don't we take a pause here, head to the phones, and talk to Lillian in Berkeley? Hi, Lillian. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Well, um, I had just moved into a, a house here in Berkeley when these fires began in uh, Berkeley and the Oakland Hills. <clears throat> and we would sit at our, our TV and watch these houses being just blown up and, and gone in minutes. And what happened uh, the day before, I think there was a small, small brush fire that wasn't watched overnight. It wasn't even tended uh, like a Boy Scout would attended, and it burst into flame and caused this terrible, terrible storm of fire. And uh, also, I understand that PG&E was at fault for not turning off some of the uh, gas lines, causing and, a lot of those houses to blow up. You know, you raise a really good point, Lillian, and I think, yeah, now, now we see PG&E turning off power, uh, sometimes more preemptively uh, than we've seen in the past. Ha- have you changed up the way? Do you have like a go bag at the ready at home and in your car now? Actually, I, I don't have room in my car because I'm handicapped and I have I have things in the back of my car related to that. But I try to get things, yes, and in hand. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> uh, Lillian, for calling in and, and raising those important points. Uh, I believe we've got Rob back on the line. Uh, uh, do you think, Rob, that in retrospect, you understood the uh, kind of danger that you were in uh, on those days? Uh, absolutely not, Rachel. Uh, I, I had no idea. Uh, you know, I wasn't as experienced as I am now in covering uh, these wildfires. They weren't so prevalent. Um, you know, now they're almost, you know, several times, you know, you get several of them a year, but, you know, back then they happened, but not, not so frequently. So no. Um, and when we were seeing the, you know, the firefighters not, uh, reacting in any, any serious, you know, concerned way. Um, no, we, we had no idea what, uh, what we were getting in for. 
Mayor Harris, you mentioned earlier, you know, that one of the reasons people like to live in the hills of the East Bay is the greenery, the flammable landscaping, and not to mention the narrow winding roads where, you know, these are part of those neighborhoods' charm. Do you do you find yourself arguing with people who, who don't see it maybe because, you know, they got here in the last 30 years? Newer residents certainly don't have the experience or certainly the uh, understanding of how bad these things can get. Uh, so therefore, when they see things like having to cut back on your vegetation or having emergency preparation, all those things seem to them a little bit unnecessary or certainly overreacting to the potential for a wildfire. Or oh, it doesn't happen here. It happens in you know far reaches of the, of the state up uh, near an Oregon border or near the uh, Nevada border, but nowhere in an urban area like Oakland, Berkeley. Uh, those of us who live through it, we know the contrary. We know how severe this can be, how life-threatening it can be, how devastating it can be. And I think there's not much reaction in a negative way for those who have experienced this kind of uh, danger, crisis, and death. Um, Rob, I, I wanted to ask you uh, about Battalion Chief Riley. Um uh, a guy you met uh, while you were reporting. Um, it, it's a story that some people may know, but many people may not. Yeah, well, real quick, my photographer and I, uh, and Nick Soros, we, we were pretty much trapped and weren't sure uh, where to go at this point. And a fire truck came sort of out of the smoke. Um, and uh, the battalion chief, it was, it was uh, Chief Riley, told us you know, that we better hop on. So we did, and the, the fire truck just kind of gunned it uh, away. They weren't trying to, you know, put the fire out. It was, it, was, it was way beyond their capabilities to do that. But they were trying to evacuate neighborhoods and get people, you know, get people out. And so every minute or so, the truck would, would stop and the firefighters would get out and they'd tell people, go, go, go. And at one point, Chief Riley uh, did not get back on the truck and the uh, firefighters thought that he, maybe he had gone into his, gone to his personal car, which they knew was up in the hills. And so they went on. And I, at least I didn't learn until the next day that uh, he was killed uh, in one of the neighborhoods helping a resident. And uh, it was, you know, very, 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 you know, sad and traumatic. And, you know, I've always been grateful for him to, to let us, uh, you know, hop on their, their fire truck because uh, without him and without that crew, we definitely would not have made it out of there. You know, I, I think to the wildfires I've covered in my in my years as a reporter, and uh, it, it just can't be said enough, you really see heroes, genuine, honest-to-goodness heroes on the fire lines uh, of California. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And they do it so willingly and with such a great skill. Uh, and, and bravery, and uh, you know, and they, they, and not only do they go into dangerous situations, but they're also very good at at trying to calm neighbors down to get them to, you know, to, to focus and do the right things. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's about a million different little jobs that they have to do uh, in addition to just uh, putting out the fire once they come in contact with, you know, with the public. I just want to remind you all that we are taking your stories and your questions for our, our guests here today. If you call at 866-733-6786, there's a chance you might get on the air. That's 866-733-6786. You can, of course, email us or forum at kqed.org, and you can hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. We are monitoring those accounts as well. Um, you know, Francis, I I just want to ask, do you have a sense following the tunnel fire that that this area, this this 2.5 square miles of the East Bay Hills has has come together as a community maybe more tightly than before the fire? Absolutely. A number of organizations uh, were formed after the fire, uh, you know, starting from people banding together to understand how to get insurance payments to uh, neighborhood associations that are still meeting regularly that have played a role in Oakland, you know, city politics have, you know, commented on clearing trees from the hills, uh, et cetera. I do think that, yeah, the, and there's, you know, cert groups, people responding in case of earthquakes and things like that. So definitely, I think the fire uh, uh, sort of spawned a number of community groups that are that are flourishing. 
it sounds like we might have somebody on the line who uh, can speak to this uh, in detail. Sue in Oakland. Um, I have a couple of concerns. First of all, two-thirds of the people who live in the fire zone weren't here in 1991. And so they don't really have the sense of urgency, although I think all this coverage recently has has, uh, maybe raised their consciousness. Uh, But there are two things. The first thing is that when you choose to live here, you have to have a different mindset. Emergency preparedness and wildfire prevention has to be top of mind awareness 365 days a year. It does no good just to prepare your property for defensible space in June for your inspections because the fires can happen at any time at this point. And the second thing is we need to go from just individuals creating defensible space to neighborhoods working together because the fire goes where the fuel is and where the wind takes it. It knows no jurisdiction. So you're at the mercy of the least prepared property in your neighborhood. And so there's a very big need for neighbors to work together. Um, and the, the city's uh, CERT program and the Oakland Fire Safe Council's Oakland Community Preparedness and Response Program help foster that. But it takes people in the neighborhood taking the lead. Very well put. Thank you so much, Sue. Mayor Harris, I mean, we do know that in the aftermath of the Tunnel Fire, Oakland really shifted its focus from disaster response to fire prevention. Uh, Do you think that's true for other cities in the Bay Area? Probably not. Uh, You have to really go through this to really understand. And I believe the previous caller might have been Sue Piper, and she and her husband were two of the leaders of the neighborhood groups that really demanded not only the city, but the people who lived in the city, be prepared, uh, do what was necessary. Those are the kind of things you have to really have. You have to have not just the government of the city, but the people of the city. Be organized, uh, be demanding, and more importantly, be prepared themselves to respond to the possibility, if not the reality, of urban fires. Let's go now to David in Berkeley. Hello. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Alive. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, um, I, I had just opened uh, Afi Komen Jewish uh, Bookstore in on Claremont Avenue just uh, about uh, three weeks before the uh, fire. And um, we, uh, that morning, we looked up and we saw the sun was uh, uh orange and we began to smell smoke and sometime later we could actually see fire over near the uh, Claremont Hotel and uh, at that point friends of ours came we still hadn't fully stocked the store and they uh, brought their cars and we pretty much emptied the store expecting that the fire was very likely to come down the hill because the wind was blowing our our direction Um, it uh, was pretty scary the next day uh, we came back to the store, and it smelled of smoke. Uh, it was a pretty scary moment for us since we had just been spending the last year of our lives putting this store together, and we had just opened it. We had, I think it was the week after the uh, fire that we um, uh, had our opening celebration. So uh, that store is still there. Now, 30 years later, it just celebrated its 30th anniversary. Well, I'll just um, say mazel tov to that, George. And I mean, sorry, mazel tov to that, David. And let me uh, thank you for, for that experience. We've got a, a bunch of calls on the line. I, I do want to uh, give George in Oakland a, a chance to tell his story. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. So my name is George. I lived on Amito Avenue in, in, uh, in the hills, right above the Claremont Hotel. Um, the morning of the fire, I saw the fire, I saw the smoke burning. The night before, my wife and I took a walk and um, because we heard the fire engines and saw the firemen um, trying to put out, well, putting out and, and sort of um, patrolling the, the, the uh, vacant lot that had started the fire where the fire started. And the morning of the fire, I went up on the roof. I have a flat roof and I had a hose and I was hosing down the um, uh, the roof and the wind was blowing so strong that it, the water never hit the roof. It went sideways. I could see Hill of Highlands burning, but the wind was blowing from my house toward that, to the Hill of Highlands. But somehow the hill, the fire burned down the valley in between us, came up and burned the house. Um, I got my wife and my baby out. She was four and a half. Um, Came up back up the house, parked the car the, the, in the uh, at the Claremont, 
and came back up against the fireman's and the policeman's uh, direction to get my other car. And my neighbor across the street, I something it was it was sort of spiritual. I was walking, driving away, and 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 a, a voice said, "Where's Don? Don Hopkins, uh, Ron Dellums's aide de camp, was living directly across the street from me." And I said, "What do I care?" Then they, I had the same voice, and I backed up. My house is now burning, and um, I went down, knocked on his door, kicked his door, noticed nothing, and all of a sudden, as I was climbing the stairs, he came out and said, "What are you doing?" And he didn't know the fire; he was asleep. He had he had, he had really sleep marks on his face. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, and and um and we 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 ripped the door off his garage because there was no power. Our garage door, and and we drove down, and um and um I I I I feel I saved his life, although I didn't do anything. It was a spiritual thing. I you know I didn't know he was there. Something told me check on Don, and there he was. So that's my story. Thank you so much, George, for that. Uh, Rob, you know, hearing that, I, I'm I'm just uh, taken once again by uh, the ways that we see just individual people in California rising to the challenge uh, of uh, horrific wildfires. Not not just the Tunnel Fire, but but in the last thirty years, we've seen so many more with climate change. You know, there. It's not everybody, but some people really listen to that call, knock on that door, knock again, make sure that nobody's in there. Yes, and it's incredible. And and in some cases, like in in rural parts of, say, Sonoma County, uh, where people will drive, you know, a, a, a mile to their neighbor's home to, to make sure perhaps they're, they're elderly or, or infirmed, and they'll knock on doors to, to make sure they're out or, or what they need or give them rides. Um, and, you know, in these rural areas, um, you know, it's a lot easier in an urban area, uh, certainly brave and people do step up. Uh, but uh, I'm always uh, amazed at what happens in kind of the more remote places. And, and uh, often the remote places is where these fires start. Well, Rob Roth, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. A reporter from KTVU Channel 2 News, uh, there at the scene of the tunnel fire 30 years ago and here today to talk about it. Thank you again. Thank you, Rachel. You know, we're, we're talking about the 30th anniversary of the tunnel fire hit Oakland and Berkeley Hills in 1991. Uh, and we have been talking with, as you just heard, Rob Roth and also Ellie Hugh Harris, the former mayor of Oakland from 1991 to 1999. Frances Dinglespield, journalist and founder of Berkeley Side and Oakland Side, who lost her home in the fire. Uh, but we know that there are many of you out there in the Bay Area today who remember what happened in 1991, who may have been there, who may have lost a home, uh, or at, at least were taken by what happened to think about how you want to protect you and yours um, as we face more fi- uh, wildfires more frequently uh, in California today because of climate change. I want to give out that number one more time. It's uh, 866-733-6786. Join the conversation. Tell us your story. Uh, ask questions of, the, of our guests. 866-733-6786. Of course, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking about the Tunnel Fire of 1991 that destroyed 3,400 homes in the hills of Berkeley and Oakland. We're taking your calls and comments. Robert writes, uh, from a rooftop on Telegraph Avenue near Dwight Way, I watched with neighbors as the fire burned out of control down the hill towards the Claremont Hotel. One home after another exploded in flames. Countless fire vehicles and even planes dropping retardant seemed to have no impact slowing the flames. 
um, watching, I drew my own line above the hotel, deciding if that house burned, I was going to leave town. Uh, the Claremont Hotel is the largest wooden structure in California. If it burns, the whole city could go. I know I can visualize what you're talking about there. Let, let's take another uh, phone call now. Ide, uh, let's see, Ide in Berkeley. It, it, this fire was so horrific, it was beyond description. I lived in Berkeley at the time, uh, Nuclear Avenue, but the fire was just, you could not describe it really at all. But what I like to say, the fire started in one of my friend's uh, backyard, a couple. They had a small barbecue. Then they started a fire. The Oakland Fire Department came and put it off about 7 o'clock or so. But somewhere around midnight, the fire started again, ignited by itself. And I'll tell you, it just it was unbelievable. A lot of those poor people who died, they died stuck in their cars because they were jam, jammed street cars from downhill. The, uh, the, I, what happened, once the fire came to the Claremont Hotel, the Berkeley Fire Department really, really did a great job to save the whole two cities, the two towns. They stopped it. It almost devoured the Claremont, and with that, it would have gone down to Maine, Berkeley as well. Uh, so I hurry to both Oakland and Berkeley Fire Department. They did a great job, but this thing beyond belief. You cannot, you cannot describe it. It was like watching a barbecue um, you cook with right in front of you in the hills. It was, it was horrible. It was red, red and flames, you know, miles of red color flames. Thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you so much, know. Ide, for sure. that. Uh, you know, joining us now, we have Scott Stevens, professor with the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management with UC Berkeley, who studies wildfires and wildland fire science. Uh, Scott, do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you learned as a, as a young fire scientist studying the tunnel fire? Yes, that was uh, my first semester as a grad student at UC Berkeley, of all things. And Afterwards, once the fire was basically out, about four or five of us from the Berkeley um, research group spent about a month up there and actually tried to understand how the fire moved. We actually were able to look at the foliage of trees. A lot of times when foliage of trees doesn't burn, it actually freeze dries in the position that actually the fire came. So you can go up there and see, um, essentially get some information how the fire moved in there. We also did, with some other grad students, extensive work on the um, survivorship of the houses, what factors actually maybe dealt with them surviving or being lost. So we spent a, a great deal of time up there. And, and as the callers have all said, it's one of the saddest environments I've ever been because it was just so much lost. But it was, a, um, it was an intense experience. It, it was, I mean, you think of the blackened hellscape uh, that now, sad to say, we are we are commonly familiar with. I mean, it it seems two to five times a year now on the regular we see these 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 wastelands. Uh, do you feel like like we've done enough as as a local community and as a state to to ready ourselves to to prevent this kind of thing? We've done better. And I've heard the conversations, you know, of the cities and other responses. And I have to give credit for that. I still think there's maybe a little too much volunteer needed here because a lot of volunteers work so hard. Of course, all volunteers have other jobs and lives. You know, one thing I've gone to Australia and been over there a fair amount and looked at what they do, they have kind of these extension advisors that actually are full-time people that work in the community. They live in the community, they work in the community, and they're kind of the hub to help people understand what's available in terms of techniques, trying to organize communities and even neighborhoods to respond, also social media savvy. So I think we've done well, but I think we could do a little better by actually organizing ourselves at the community level with people that are full-time that could work in these communities and actually be the hubs of information innovation. You know, we heard earlier about the Pipers, the famous Pipers of Oakland. Uh, and you know, we have a, somebody writing in, Stephen, who says, please note that Oakland's core, that Citizens of Oakland Responding to Emergencies program, was developed in response to these two disasters uh, that has since inspired uh, the CERT, Community Emergency Response Training Programs, in many, many localities throughout the state and across the country. Are, are, are those not enough, Stephen? You know, I think they are, again, just wonderful kind of beginnings of a program that's a little more systematic. 
you know, you think about California, look at all the fire services in this state, Cal Fire, one of the best service, maybe the best in the whole world, certainly our local services like Berkeley and Oakland. But what about having maybe 30 or 40 people whose full-time job is in different counties of the state, from San Diego to Modoc, to basically help organize communities, cities, county boards of supervisors, um, groups that are volunteering. How about someone that's the hub that actually is a full-time person with the expertise to do it? I think it would be another addition. It actually wouldn't cost that much. In fact, the legislature has actually put $2 million in such an effort. And we do have a, two people in the state already working on this and they're wildly successful. So I just still think it's another way that we can get a little bit more of an institution around getting people prepared versus maybe looking at all these different programs. Sometimes I'm afraid they're a little dis- dis- disconnected. Francis Dinkelspiel, does that sound like a good idea to you? Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, citizens groups are important and government, government has more power to command and control than citizens groups do. So, yes. I, I do want to get at least one more call in before the, the, the hour ends. Why don't we go to Jenny in Oakland? Hi, this Hi. is Jenny. Yeah, so my story, I lived up, I still do live at the top of Broadway Terrace, and I had a two-year-old, and I was pregnant, my husband was gone, and um, a neighbor suddenly comes bursting in my door, and I thought, you know, she didn't even knock, you know, or ring the doorbell. She said, you know, there's a fire at the top of the other canyon, you might want to think about leaving, and I thought, oh, she's exaggerating, we went out, and we could see the flames, uh, so I knew it was either big or close, you know, where, where it wasn't just the smoke, but the flames, so I went in, grabbed my shoes, called my husband, said, don't come through the tunnel because that's where it looks like the fire. And by the time I came out, so it was maybe five minutes, it was like being in a whiteout. It was so smoky. Um, And so, you know, what I I did, and, you know, the thing that that was terrifying, I think it was the reporter who said how loud they are, is that I could hear the crackle of the fire. But at this point, it was so smoky, I couldn't see. So I thought, which way is the wind going? I grabbed my son, who was two. I didn't even grab the diaper bag. So people said, what did you take? And I'm like, you don't understand. It was like I had, I was running for my life. I did, you know, we got in the car and I tried to figure out which way the wind was going. So I didn't drive into the fire um, and escaped. And they at first said, you know, this whole area is totally gone, but we were very fortunate that a friend sort of snuck up behind the, the police line the next day and said, you're not going to believe it. Your little one block long cul-de-sac made it. So um, we're very grateful for that. And if I, if anything, it's had a very galvanizing effect on the neighborhood. We've really come together, you know, post fire in a way that didn't exist before the fire. So, well, thank you so much for that story, Jenny. Uh, Mayor Harris, I'm wondering if you can respond to Lisa's comment. I would like to hear folks discuss how the fire and its aftermath was handled, specifically because this fire was in a high-income area. Would it have been handled differently if it had happened, uh, for example, in East Oakland? First thing is the neighbors, uh, whether they're in East Oakland or North Oakland or the hills, are the most important asset to the city and responding to an emergency. In this case, the neighbors got involved. Uh, they were not only forceful, sometimes angry about what had happened to them, but then they began to organize to talk about how do we make sure this doesn't happen again. We set up an emergency response task force that looked at the issues of agriculture, eucalyptus trees, the need to underground utilities, how we're going to deal with the uh, insurance commissioner and the insurance companies who didn't want to respond. All these things happened because the neighbors and the city came together to work together. We set up a one-stop center for people to be able to come to meet with architects, to meet with other resources to restore their homes. One thing I'm really proud of has been about two years, 70% of the homes have been restored. That's an incredible record. I don't know if it's ever going to be beaten because people wanted to move back to their homes. They were committed to restoring their neighborhoods. That's what really matters. Where you live is not as important as how you respond, how you interact, how active you are in taking action to make sure not only doesn't happen again, but to make sure that the community responds and works together as neighbors to make sure that everyone is taken care of and no one is left behind. 
Mara writes uh, that she's now living in Kenwood, one mile from the effects of both the 2017 and 2020 fires uh, in the area. There are some houses in Kenwood that are loaded, she writes, with dead or severely dry trees leaning on communication and uh, lower line power lines. But the owners are not able to cut them down because they simply don't have the financial resources to do so. There are no PG&E grants available to help with this. Um, you know, Francis, as a reporter, as a, as a journalist, uh, do you think that we're addressing this problem? I think I mentioned earlier just driving in today, I was noticing the trees sitting on power lines and wondering about that. That is a very good question uh, about, you know, how to provide resources to people who cannot afford to take protective measures around the ho- their home. I mean, I think this is a question for government. This should be something that maybe uh, Governor Newsom uh, comes up with a solution for considering the surplus in the California budget this year. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the caller or the writers is 100% uh, correct. I know in Oakland after the fire, um, the uh, the city set up some kind of special district that um, placed a tax on homeowners to uh, uh, make sure that the fire department was uh, involved in looking at how people were creating a defensible space. That tax or whatever it was, I can't remember, expired. You know, fortunately, the city of Oakland has still continued to do that to some degree, but there are fewer resources to, uh, you know, to, to, create defensible space. I think that that is a question for the government to step up and step in because I, um, I, I don't know that the cities have, you know, enough resources to provide funding to do that kind of trimming. Major, may I say one thing? I yeah. think it's really important that people understand. You have to make demands on government. You can't just hope they'll do the right thing. Go to the city council meetings. Talk to your city council members. Uh, talk to the people in the fire department. You know, we've got to take more proactive uh, responsibility for our individual and collective being. Too many people think government's going to do it or somebody else is going to take care of it. We all have to be involved. Responsibility is the first requirement of democracy. Beautifully put. I think we have time for one more call. Let's go to John in Oakland. Hi, good morning, Mayor. How are you this morning? Good morning. Hi, I just want to let you know that you did an extraordinary job during the time your tenure as mayor. You held this city together. You showed resiliency. So you showed that Oakland could rise again. But, you know, when I talk amongst my neighbors, our number one issue right now is actually not fires, but what? Actually, gunfires in the city of Oakland. Right, We're right. Hitting, hitting 113 homicides. And, you know, the likeness that, you know, there's a probability that we'll, there will be wildfires for the foreseeing future. But at this immediate time, there's minorities killing minorities. And a lot of kids are getting killed. John, in the I'm, I'm, I'm going to break in here because we really are talking about the tunnel fire this hour. And, and I don't want to, you know, uh, change direction just seven right. minutes before we point, go. I hope yeah. you will talk about this issue. He's absolutely correct. Yeah. This is yeah. part of the issues, but not, I understand what you're saying. Thank you so much for that call, John. Uh, well, you know, I, 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 one of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, Mayor, uh, you and Francis, and for, for that matter, uh, Scott Stevens, uh, when the weather turns, when the weather gets hot at the at the end of summer, does that sense of anxiety ever go away? Or is there always some part of you that that's haunted by your experience from 30 years ago? Uh, Francis, do you want to start with that? Yes, I, I whenever it gets hot and windy, I get very nervous and I can't sleep. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I I'm, you know, on the edge all the time, wondering when the fire is going to break out. Mayor? I see this not only in, I feel not only in Oakland and uh, the Bay Area, but throughout the country. Whenever you hear about a wildfire, you know what it can mean. You know the devastation. Uh, you can't ever forget uh, the kind of experience that all of us had who were alive and certainly involved in that Oakland and Berkeley Hills fire. It was a tremendous uh, tragedy where loss of life was real, but more importantly, where we really understand that we don't learn the lessons of history, but doomed to repeat them. Stephen? You know, I would say the same thing. You know, when I get these um, 
dry winds, east winds. I'm always wondering when it's going to rain in the fall. I never used to think about that as much, you know, 20 years ago. But the other thing I would just say is there actually is hope to move forward. There are things you can do today that you can make a difference at your level of your house, your community, and also even kind of whole ecosystems. And I would say the state of California is actually moving in that direction in the last four or five years, kind of more aggressively, which is great. So I think it is on all of us at all levels to try to move forward and make our systems less vulnerable to fire, including where we live. You know, I, I uh, we've talked earlier this hour about the importance of having your own go bags ready, your own personal home family plan for how to respond when the call comes or just the smell of smoke. Hopefully not the the sight of open flames nearby. We we've heard uh, Mayor Harris talking about engaging with local government, not uh, not sitting around, but taking a proactive, uh, you know, uh, strategy with government, demanding that government do more. But I'm I'm wondering about this line from from Kristen, who writes, perhaps Berkeley and Oakland could work with the governor and PG&E to use the upcoming infrastructure money to underground our power lines. Um, is there a sense, Mayor Harris, that that um, that that's something government is willing to invest in? Because, you know, that's the kind of thing it's going to take more than just, you know, a, a diligent community member uh, to push for. Well, I'm not, no, it starts with the community, though. I mean, it starts at the local level and spreads up to the state and spreads up to the national government, top down, bottom up. It really doesn't make any difference. The bottom line is look at what you need, make those demands, and sometimes you have to come together and provide the tax money to do it. Government can't uh, respond to uh, do everything with the existing revenues. Sometimes people have to dig a little deeper. Maybe they're going to save something on their insurance they can put in the common pool to deal with undergrounding of utilities or cutting back on vegetation, particularly in public areas. All these things are necessary. Some of them cost money. Some are just common sense. We need to look at all the issues and decide how they ought to be addressed, not ignore them simply because they cost money. Francis, is there is something on your wish list if if Governor Newsom were to call you today and say, you know, what what's the one thing you want me to take care of? Oh, that's a uh, I, I can't answer that question, but I would like to just respond to your last question about, you know, I don't think it's practical for the for the state to pay for undergrounding. It's way too expensive. I know for just on our street alone, each house, and this is 30 years ago, had to pay like three thousand dollars. Um, but you know there are things that government can do. For example, in Berkeley, one of the and, and Oakland, one of the big issues is Grizzly Peak Boulevard, which you know runs through numerous jurisdictions, and people park on the roads, they smoke cigarettes, they drink, and you know fires have been started from there. And so uh, the various municipalities are trying to coordinate a response, and they've they've knocked off. Uh, uh, they blocked off parking on Grizzly Peak. They they're they're trying to come up with other ways to reduce fire hazards. Um, you know, not that don't cost a lot of money. And I know the city of Berkeley is focused a lot on this. So I do think you know there are things that government is trying um, that are less expensive. I, I just don't think we're gonna we're not gonna have magical money raining down from above that's gonna solve our problems. Well, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Oakland fires. Uh, Scott Stevens, Elihu Harris, Francis Dinkelspiel, and Rob Roth. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum coming up with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.